Let's take our Bibles and turn together to 2 Samuel chapter 20, the reading that we had earlier. Someone has written that though humanity is ever advancing, humans remain ever the same. And certainly it would be true that those of us who have been around the block a few times, quite a few times, recognize that at this new year, when the media starts to discuss the stories of the past year, reflect upon them, throw up their hands in horror at the awful things that happened last year, look forward to the possibilities of a new year, one thing remains the same. And what remains the same is that there'll be more of the same, sadly, in this year that there was last year. The faces will change, the names will change, the circumstances might be slightly different, but the hard fact remains that every new year I remember, and I remember hundreds of them now, uh, it's been the same old, same old, reflecting on the same stuff, the good and the bad, and as we've looked into the future, there's been the same anxiety. Where is the economy going? Will there be jobs for people? What's going to be the outcome of the latest policies? What about world peace? What about saving the world and the environment? The world and life as we know it. All of these things were up, were up for grabs this new year. And what is true of society, I have to say, is also true of the church. I mean the church in its largest sense. We, we recognize that because we look back at the stories, like the story we read this morning. You ask yourself, once you've read it, why is this in the Bible? I asked myself that earlier on this week. I looked at it and I thought, do you think they would forget? Would they notice if I skipped this? I looked up some sermons of friends of mine who preached on Second Samuel. I didn't look up the sermon, but I looked up to see what they had called their sermon on this chapter and noticed that they had conveniently skipped over it. One of them gave the excuse that they had a tight schedule and they had to finish. They had to finish the series by a certain date, so therefore they would just omit this chapter. Let me tell you that having looked at it, I now know why. Uh, but I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will know why as well. That's important. Well, let me, let me put it like this. There are some ideas in the Bible that are shaped by a view of the whole of Scripture. You take the word Israel. When you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, of course, the word Israel represents everybody who is descended from Jacob, Jacob who was renamed Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel are the descendants of Jacob, who is the descendant of Abraham. They are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And the twelve tribes together constitute the Israel of God. Sadly, in the history of the Israel that we call Israel, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's going to be a division between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes into northern Israel and southern Israel. The northern Israel retained the title Israel. They thought they had the market on it. And southern Israel tended to be known by the larger of the two tribes, Judah. But all together, they formed the Israel of God. But as you begin to read the later prophets, you discover that not everybody who belongs to Israel, in fact, is Israel in their heart. 
You find, for example, Isaiah the prophet talks about a remnant of people within Israel. People who truly believe the promises of God. People who really accept that God is going to send a Messiah into the world and God is going to bring blessing to the whole world through the Messiah. There is a believing minority, a remnant within Israel. Now you turn the clock to our time, the new Israel, the church, which is the continuing Israel of God with the Gentiles being adopted into the family of God by God's grace. We are the also-rans, but we've been engrafted into the vine, which is Israel. And we discover that the, the community, the larger community of the church, is like ancient Israel, a mixed community. There are believers and unbelievers. Sometimes the believers and the unbelievers don't look any different from one another. Sometimes the things they say and the way they live and the outlook they have seem almost identical. And you have to look very closely to know whether or not these people truly are believers or unbelievers. When the Lord Jesus is speaking to churches, you remember in the opening chapters of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, when he's addressing churches. Do you remember he recognizes that not everybody listening to this letter being read or expounded to their church. Not everybody actually has the root of the matter. They're in McDonald's, but they're not a hamburger. They're in church, but they're not really a Christian. Jesus says to them, those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And the reality is, every time we stand at this sacred desk and proclaim the Word of God to the people of God, we know that among those who profess to be the people of God, who recite the creed, who sing the hymns, there are those, well, there are those like Sheba, who we're introduced to in this chapter. Sheba belonged to the covenant community of God. If you look at verse 1, you'll see that. There happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. To be where? You glance back to the previous chapter, and the place is Gilgal, a center of worship of the Lord God of Israel, one of the key places in the history of Israel where the people of God, when they entered the promised land, it was at Gilgal that they renewed their covenant relationship with God. And wherever there was a spiritual crisis in Israel, it was to Gilgal they went to renew their covenant relationship with God. And there had been a massive crisis. There had been a total rebellion against King David. It was massive. It was total. Virtually the entire population of Israel, all 12 tribes had mobilized themselves together to follow Absalom, who is a kind of antichrist figure, because in the scripture, Absalom is in rebellion against the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's King, David. Absalom is antichrist, number one. And he mobilizes the entire population against King David. Well, by this time, Absalom is dead. David is back in Jerusalem. And in chapter 19, he brings together all the tribes of Israel to this covenant renewal place. 
And together there, they reaffirm their loyalties to each other, their loyalty to King David, and therefore their loyalty to the God of Israel, who is their great king above all kings. And there was a man there. At that solemn assembly, at that moment of spiritual crisis, at that moment of enormous blessing for Israel, there was a man there called Sheba. And in his heart was born rebellion against God's Messiah, God's King. And that's the background of the story. And I want you to remember as we read the story, two very simple things. The first is that this story is being driven by the Word of God. Driven by the Word of God. The Word of God in chapter 7 where God promises David that his throne will be established, that there will always be a Davidite, somebody from the line of David, to reign over Israel. It will be established. That's promise number one. Promise number two comes from chapter 12, where God has said to David, in his rebellion and sin, the sword shall never depart from your house. The word of God is driving this story. God is going to preserve David. God is going to give David a descendant who will be a greater descendant, who will bring blessing to the world. But on the other hand, there's going to be conflict and the reign of David will be contested in the world. The word of God is driving the story. Secondly, the story is focused on the kingdom of God. You know that God rules. God reigns. He's sovereign. That means he rules everywhere and he rules everybody. That there's nobody out with the reign of God in the world. Everything is under the almighty reign of the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-reigning God. Everything. But at different points in the history of the world, that invisible reign, because we don't see it, we don't see him on his throne. We don't see his reign visibly expressed in armies or flags or capital buildings. The reign of God is expressed differently at different periods in history. So in the time of David, the reign of God, which is invisible and everywhere, becomes visible and localized in Israel, the nation. Israel was meant to demonstrate by the way they lived according to God's law. That they were a people under God, a nation under God. Today, the invisible reign of God is expressed visibly in the church of Jesus Christ. We are meant to demonstrate by the way we worship, by the way we gather, that we are a people under the authority of God. We come together Lord's Day by Lord's Day and we get ourselves in this room. And here we are, a mixture of people from different walks of life. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Not, not too many ugly, of course. You understand? But here we all are in a bundle of life that we call the church. And someone come in, in here uh, who has no familiarity with Christianity or the church or whatever it means, comes in here and they see this strange phenomenon. Here we all are. Most of you are sitting passively. Some of you are so passive, you're enjoying a recap on your night's sleep. I can see that. 
And, and, and my voice is like a buzz in the background, and I just hope that somewhere along the way, somebody slaps you in the back of the head, and you come too. But here we all are sitting here, and somebody coming in looks at you and thinks, well, look at that bunch of people. They look relatively normal. Uh, some of them are probably going to be intelligent, others perhaps not so intelligent, but they're, they're, you know, they're dressed in a variety of outfits, some of which you shouldn't have bothered with. But, but there they all are, and they're listening, they're listening to this guy speak to them, even slap them around a little bit. And of course, the reason you're listening is because of what I say from the Word of God. You're not really listening for the one-liners. You're listening for the Word of God. And by us coming together in this joyful assembly to hear the Word of God, we are saying to the world, we are people who live under the authority of our great king. We are a covenant people. Our lives are governed by the word of God. God speaks to us. We come to hear what our king has to say to us. All of us do. So the invisible kingdom of God is visible in the church. Now, here's what happens in the visible church. There's a worthless fellow emerges, Sheba. I said he's a worthless guy. That's what we're told about him. That phrase means that he is a son of Belial, son of the devil, you might say. And he stirs up the people, do you notice in verse 1, with this saying. He says, we have no portion in David... And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. There he meant the northern part of Israel, the ten tribes. And he's called a worthless man, do you notice, because he foments rebellion against God's Messiah, God's King, David. It is because of his opposition to David that he is a worthless man. He is urging the people to break their covenant with the king. And how he does this is he plays upon a sense of offended pride. Let me, we don't have time to do this uh, in any depth, but if you take time later to read chapter 19, as you come to the end of chapter 19, the men of northern Israel, the ten tribes, come to the king and they say to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? What happened was this. The Absalom rebellion was put down. Both the people of Judah and the ten tribes to the north, all of Israel was implicated in Absalom's rebellion. Now David is reestablished, and he's called them to a spiritual retreat at Gilgal, and they've come together there. But here was the problem. The problem was that it was the northern ten tribes, northern Israel, that were the first to say, we should bring back the king. While the men of Judah weren't doing anything, it was the northern ten tribes who were the first to say, it's time we brought back the king. 
David, on the other hand, had had to send envoys to the people of Judah and say, you know what your northern ten neighbors are saying? They're saying it's time to bring back the king. Don't you think, because you're related to me, that you should be part of this act, that you should be in on this new thing and bring back the king? And so the men of Judah eventually succumbed to that and they decided that if they were going to bring back the king, they would be the first ones to do it. So they went over the Jordan, they got the king, they brought him over the Jordan, they got him to Jerusalem, they got him installed in the palace, and they didn't wait for the ten tribes to come and join them. Now the ten tribes have arrived. They said, David, could you not wait for us? Why did you go ahead without us? Are we not important? And Sheba builds his argument on the basis of injured pride. You see, what this story exposes is that there is in all of us a tendency to take offense. We take it easily when we feel that we've been misunderstood or misrepresented or simply sidelined. But the effect of what Sheba did was to create schism within the church of that day, within Israel. He builds on a grievance. It wasn't really a major grievance. It could have been resolved if people with wise minds and winsome words had gotten together and talked about it, then it would all have been fixed. What we see here is a familiar pattern in church life. It's our nature to take offense. And people will come along and they will play in those hurt feelings, you know. You can recognize the strategy of Sheba. It may come from inside your own head or it may come from somebody else. But it goes something like this. You don't fit in that church. You don't belong in that church. What they're trying to do is drive a wedge between you and the people of God. There are troublemakers who come along and they highlight the differences. Here we all are. We're different colors. We have different dress sense, and some don't have any sense at all. Others have different musical tastes, and some don't have any taste whatsoever. Uh, uh, there, there, there's a whole way, raft of differences between us as we gather in this place. There are some who are struggling, and, and there's tension that exists within the church, isn't there, between the marrieds and the singles, between the rich and the poor, between the employed and the unemployed or the underemployed. And the employers. And what, what Sheba does, whether in your own mind or through the lips of somebody else is, he wants to drive this thought in your head, there is no place with you, with David. Maybe he's whispering in your ear, there's no place for you in this church if you struggle. Look around and look at all these people who've got it all together. They look as if they're as happy as the day is long. They have no problems in their life. There is nothing that disturbs the even flow or tenor of their experience. They don't understand what you're going through. You're struggling. You're struggling with your finances. You're struggling with sexual sin. You're struggling with illness. You're struggling with divorce. You're struggling with widowhood. You're struggling to make ends meet. Perhaps you've been mentally scarred or physically abused or emotionally challenged. You're struggling with depression. The church has no place for you. Look at these people. And of course, it's a lie, isn't it? Because if you knew these people as I know these people, you'll know that all of those things go on 
behind those cleanly washed, freshly showered, relatively well-dressed exteriors. It isn't true. But when Sheba is at work, you see, Sheba tries to create a distinction so that he can lead to a a secession, split you away from the very body of Christ where you will be nurtured and where you will grow and where you will be built up in your faith because he wants to destroy you and destroy your faith. It was all so unnecessary. It was all so unnecessary because, in fact, it was all based on a misunderstanding at one level. Now, there is another side to the story. The other side of the story is that the men of Judah really were obnoxious. I mean, they really were. They, they, were, they were arguing, and they, they actually offended them. If you look at the end of chapter 19, you can see this. Uh, the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. There are ten tribes here. We have ten shares in the king and in David also. And the men of Judah, they said, But he's our close relative. Huh. We got you there. And they despised the northern tribe. Now, interestingly, something starts here in this chapter. This really struck me. Something starts in this chapter that's going to get worse and worse and worse as time goes by. The men of Judah are going to become even more possessive of their king, possessive of their relationship to the Messiah, possessive of their relationship to King David. So possessive, in fact, that they will be exclusive. They will become ever more exclusive of everybody else. Not only will they despise the ten northern tribes, they're going to despise the Gentiles. They're going to despise anybody outside of Judah as time goes by. That begins here. Something even more subtle begins here. A false doctrine begins here. In the language that you find Sheba using in verse 1, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents. That language is what prompts this mini rebellion under Sheba. Not many people go with him, by the way. It isn't a big deal in the end. It's very quickly put down. Everything is back to normal. All the tribes are together by the end of the chapter. Everything is fine. But a seed is sown in people's minds here that is going to germinate so that later on in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16, the ten tribes in the north are going to use virtually the same language as Sheba did many, many years before. Only this time it's going to be the basis on which The ten tribes secede entirely from Judah, causing a permanent division that will lead to the annihilation and disappearance of the northern ten tribes altogether. You have no part in David. Fast forward a thousand years. Jesus comes to Nazareth. He comes, sorry, he comes to Samaria. He comes to the capital of what was northern Israel. By the time Jesus gets there, most of the people have gone or they've intermarried. But what is left is 
the northern religion. And the northern religion is a shadow of the Hebrew faith. They've extracted the first five books of Moses and that's the only Bible they have. They refuse to recognize that God is going to send a Messiah into the world who will be a son of David. And Jesus, remember, has to confront that woman of Samaria and say, salvation is of the Jews. Because here, a false doctrine began. At first, it didn't seem like a big deal. It's very quickly put down and everybody goes back into their place. But the seed of that false doctrine grows in people's minds. And as time passes, the trajectory of a movement away from the Word of God, the trajectory of a movement in which the way we say things, the way we express truth, the way we, the way we articulate what we believe begins slowly, slowly to shift until somewhere, a generation or two or three or more down the road, people have moved away entirely from revealed religion. That's how false teaching works. That's why every generation is only a generation away from losing the gospel. That's why we teach our children the catechism of the church. That's why we ourselves are anchored to the word of God in our communal studies together. Because we know how easily we can lose it. For every church like Tent has been around for over a hundred years preaching the gospel, there are a multitude of churches that were evangelical and are not now. That were reformed and are now deformed. That's the way it goes. That's why we are jealous for the word of God. That's why allowing even the scintilla of change in the way we express the truth of God is so vitally important for us to recognize because the trajectory of it is to lose the gospel altogether. Sheba starts it all here. It's a serious thing. And at the end of the day, I've run out of time. <laughs> Don't you just hate that? I mean, why do they do this to me? It's, it's, yeah, I'll blame them later for what they've done. Anyway, there's the rest of the chapter here. You want to know what the rest of the chapter is all about? You want to know about the concubines, don't you? The concubines are there, of course. They're the kind of, um, there's ten of them representing the ten tribes. The concubines' job or role really was to represent either other kingdoms that, we, that David had influence over or the other tribes David had influence over. And... Their role was not necessarily to breed children for the king. Their role was to be there as representatives in the royal court of these other nations and these other peoples or other tribes. And the king acts to guard them. They had been abused by Absalom publicly. And he acts to guard them as a sign to northern Israel, as a sign to the ten tribes, that he was protecting their interests at court. He put them under guard, not in a sense of putting them under house arrest, but making sure that they were well protected, well provided for, well cared for. He does that 
And as he does that, he's also doing it as a humbled sinner because he realizes that what happened to these women, defenseless women, when Absalom was in power, the abuse that he had heaped upon them by his sexual sin had happened as part of a judgment on him as king. He should have died, but in fact this lesser thing, at least lesser for him, not for the women involved, had happened as part of the judgment that lay upon him because of his sin. And it reminded him that it was by the mercy of God that he had been spared. And now he's trying to make up to these women by providing for them, making sure that they're absolutely secure. Although we'd wish that David had had the insight to see that the whole issue of copying the other nations and having concubines was wrong in the first place. He's trying to mollify his conscience here. But the third thing in the chapter is not only a humbled king and a worthless fellow, but a dangerous ally. This man, Joab, is a big figure in the story. Background, when David had got all Israel together, he had displaced Joab as his commander of the army, supreme commander of the army, And he had put in Joab's place this man, Amasa. Now, Amasa had been the head of the army under Absalom, the Antichrist. So he was from northern Israel, the ten tribes up north. He was one of them. And so when David reconciled with everybody together, he thought one of the ways to do this is to take the leader of the northern army and make him the leader of the army of the united tribes of Israel. It would be a bit like after the Civil War here in the 1860s, which some of you look as if you remember. Uh, the, after the Civil War, they had asked, Lincoln had asked Robert E. Lee, who was the best general, by the way, to be the commander of the Army of the United States of America. That would have been an amazing thing it would probably have been unacceptable at the time, but it would be an amazing thing. But that's precisely what David does. That's what David does to reconcile. So the people of northern Israel really had no reason to take offense to the degree they did. And Joab comes into the story. He murders Amasa. You can read the story for yourself, the gory bit. He does it the way Jack Barr would have done it on 24. Uh, hiding the sword and it just kind of, you know, as he leans forward, up it goes right into his gizzard. And, uh, the boys like that bit. And, uh, but I won't feed your desire for blood. Uh, and this man is killed. And Joab takes over. He really takes over. In fact, David's men are called Joab's men. And at the, at the last bit of the chapter, you might ask yourself what that was there. It's a kind of statement about the state of affairs. Joab comes first. David is not mentioned. Joab is in command of all the army of Israel. Joab is taking the spotlight away from David onto himself. And he's a bad man. He's a bad man. And he effectively makes himself the kingmaker. And later on, David will identify that on his deathbed, that this man Joab is a serious threat to the kingdom. And if you translate that to the church, for example, 
There have been in the history of the church people like Joab. People who have been amoral, people who have thought what might is right, people who have thought, you know, the way to preserve the church is to do whatever we need to do, whether it's using the sword or using guns or using political influence. They've concentrated power in themselves. The Middle, Age Pope, Middle Ages popes, they, they did that. And some of the Baptist popes and Presbyterian popes have done that as well. Concentrating power in themselves in order to accomplish their will as if they, they were the kingdom. and They were driving it in as if they knew more than God knew and were more powerful than God was. And displacing the place of Christ as the supreme king and head of his church. That's what was happening to our covenanting forefathers in Scotland who were striving to preserve the crown rights of the Redeemer against an official church that wanted to impose the right of the king, the earthly king, on the church. And they had to rebel because they recognized that in the church there's only one king and only room for one king, King Jesus. The Joabs of this world threatened the kingship of the Redeemer. And then the last little picture is the picture of this wise woman. Into the midst of all the blood and gore, murder and mayhem, a woman comes onto the scene. Her city is surrounded now, city of Abel, surrounded by the army of Joab. Joab is not known for being anything other than a bloodthirsty Kill them first, ask questions later kind of guy. But this wise woman, she comes out of the walls and she is, is a godly woman. I know that because she's the only person who mentions the Lord in the entire chapter. The writer has been very careful in the way in which he's written the chapter. Nobody mentions Yahweh until this woman walks onto the scene. And she comes out and she asks, I want to talk to Joab. Won't talk to anybody else, Joab. Are you Joab? Okay. I want you to know that I really love my local city. On my Facebook page, I've liked Abel. I love to put pictures on my Facebook page. I've got people here I know do this, about the place where they live. And they put them on their Facebook page, because I love Abel. In fact, she said, she said there's historical reasons why you should love Abel. Because this has been a place, a national treasure. This is a place where people have found wisdom in the past and, and great things have happened here. Abel is a, is a national treasure, a mother in Israel, she calls it. And there's a theological reason that you should spare this town of mine, she said, because this people, this city, this land is the Lord's heritage. It belongs to the Lord. It's not yours to do with as you please. What she doesn't say to him, because she probably realized this wouldn't go anywhere with this man, is that it was actually against the law of God to do what he was doing, and that is to lay siege to a city in Israel without, first of all, making an effort to create peace in a, in a peaceful way in a, through negotiation. And he wasn't even trying that. So she takes the initiative to get negotiations going. Well, the response of Joab to this woman's approach is to say, Oh, that's not true, dear. I would never do anything like that to you. In a broad Glasgow accent like that. Silly voice. He would have said to her, 
I, I'm not the kind of guy that does that. Of course I was not even thinking of attacking your city and killing you all and putting you all to the sword and any of that sort of thing at all would never, never, never. I don't know who he thought he was kidding. But somehow or other this woman gets through to him and the principle that she identifies is one man should die for the people. One man should die for the people. The guilty offender should die for the people. His head should be crushed so that the people are saved. And woven into the story, do you see how woven into the story of the Bible are these hints of redemption everywhere? They're everywhere. God puts his fingerprints all over the place to remind us That salvation for a city, salvation for an individual, salvation for a community depends on the sacrifice of the one for the many. Ultimately, the one, of course, is not the guilty offender. It is the guiltless redeemer. Now, as we draw this to a close this morning, the passage ends with a list of cabinet posts tells us that Joab is in charge of the army, reminds us that the kingdom is fragile, but it's still David's kingdom. And as I read that last little bit and I thought reflected on it this week, I was thinking, that's the way it is with the church of Jesus Christ today. It's fragile. You can look at it and you can see all the ugly bits. You can look at it and you can see the power players. You can see the people who are there just to perform and to get the attention and the adulation of the crowds. You can see the people who use it for their own advantage, their own career, to get money or whatever it may be. You you can see the people who throw their weight about. You can see that in the church there are those who don't really believe. They behave as if they don't really believe. But the church remains. It remains because the Word of God is driving the story. And the word of God that drives the story says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whether that hell is inside or outside the church, whether it's unbelief inside or whether it's the world outside attacking the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. My question to you today is, church do you really belong do you really belong I ask you can you say what these young people said earlier on today you believe in the Lord Jesus you rest on him and on him alone they said it with simplicity let me tell you that's the only way you can say it however much you know however old you are whatever you've seen wherever you've been You never get beyond being like those boys and girls today who said in the simplicity and reality of their own hearts, I'm resting on Jesus. Resting on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, by the help of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe, our minds to understand that Jesus is the King, 
And that it is on the basis of your promise that we can save. Whatever it looks like, we have a part in David and a portion in Israel. We are part of Jesus, King Jesus. And we have a portion that is a inheritance. We have a special place prepared for us in Israel. The Israel of God. So if we're struggling with being misunderstood, feeling misrepresented, perhaps feeling distant, we pray that you'd overcome that by helping us to see. And if today we're here and we realize we're in church but we're not a Christian, we pray that you would open our hearts to him, in whose strong name we pray. Amen.